Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. So, Manya, tell us about who you interviewed this week. Sefi, I spoke with Zalman Latek, the creative director for the National Yiddish Theater Folksbina and the musical director for the off-Broadway hit Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. I also spoke with Stephen Skybell, the star of the show. He stars as Tevia the Dairyman. And we talk about why that show has gone great gangbusters off-Broadway, just the possible reasons why that might be. I wish I knew how to say that sounds cool in Yiddish, but I'm eager to uh, listen in to that interview. I chatted with Avi Isakharov, who, in addition to being one of the showrunners for the hit Netflix TV series Fauda, is the Middle East analyst at the Times of Israel and Walla News. I asked him about the Israeli pinpoint operation that took out an arch terrorist in the Gaza Strip and the resulting rocket barrage that came from Palestinian Islamic Jihad in that coastal enclave. Let's hit the show. As rockets slam into southern Israel and as schools and offices across the country are closed due to the threat, we spoke with Avi Isakharov, a Middle East analyst at the Times of Israel and Walla News. Avi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, people are always fighting over when to begin telling a story. You know, sometimes people want to begin in 67 or in 48 or in 47, or in 1929, or in 1917, or 3,000 years ago. What about in this latest round? What about in, in what we're talking about this week? When did this all begin? That's also a very good question, because, you know, some would say this started with the Israeli assassination of Mulat 48 hours ago, but this is not the case, of course, because Baha Mulata was responsible for number of attacks on Israeli targets in the last 18 months, even more than that, 24 months. Time after time, the Israelis warned that they're going to act against him. Time after time, they published his name in the media outlets as the one who's responsible for escalations and for shooting a rocket and for terrorist attacks at him. And time after time, Hamas refused to act against him, though the warning came, though the warnings came, though the Israelis were trying to push the Egyptian intelligence, Hamas officials, everyone. At the end, it didn't work. And I guess it was a matter of time to something will happen to this man. I personally published two weeks ago an article report in the Times of Israel saying that this guy, Baha Bulata, is the man who's responsible for the latest escalation. If you remember, there were a few rockets that were shot from Gaza towards Israel, and he was behind it. So it was really a matter of time till Israel would try to, I would say, to eliminate the, the threat that comes from this man. So tell us a little bit more about Baha Abu Alata, the leader of Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip who Israel took out. And and actually, let me add another layer to that. You know, it's confusing when we think of rockets coming from Gaza. I think we often think of, you know, Gaza as almost synonymous with Hamas. But these rockets are not coming from Hamas. They're coming from Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So can you tell us about Abu Alata and about PIJ? Yeah, so let's start with the Islamic Jihad in Palestine, or the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, whatever they want to call themselves. It's an older organization than Hamas. It was founded in the early 80s, like five, six years before Hamas organization. And it always remained the smaller faction. And even after Hamas started its way in 87, December 87, Islamic Jihad stayed behind as a very small radical organization, even more radical than Hamas. In the late 
I would say uh, last five years, it's becoming more dominant, not dominant, but more of a presence in Gaza Strip. It has more power, more rockets, more people. Still, Hamas is more than one in power. I would say that Hamas is around 25 to maybe 30,000 people in Gaza, while Islamic Jihad is around 5,000. That's it. But still, it's a kind of a troublemaker organization because it's undermining Hamas's legitimacy, because in a way they portray Hamas as becoming a new Palestinian authority. So if your audience can remember 20 years ago, 19 years ago, when the whole terrorist attacks started to take place in Gaza Strip against Israeli forces and Israeli settlers in, in Gaza Strip, the 2000-2001. Israel was accusing the Palestinian authorities, though they knew that Hamas was behind it. So now, in the last year and a half, all the attacks that took place from Islamic Jihad, Israel was saying Hamas is responsible, although they knew that Islamic Jihad is the one who's behind the act. So it's a kind of a a very known relationship between different organizations on the Palestinian side. Once that you have an organization that is in control, you will always have the oppositioner's organization. In this case, it's the Islamic Jihad. It's challenging for Hamas to deal with Islamic Jihad. It's competing with them over popularity, over support, over weaponry. And it makes Hamas look like people that collaborate with the Israelis on security issues. And this is why it's so difficult for Hamas to act against Islamic Jihad. About Baha Bulata himself, he was an opposition inside the opposition, meaning he was an opposition inside Islamic Jihad for the ruler of the Islamic Jihad, or the, the man who's in control, Ziyad uh, Nahala, the leader of this organization who sits in Damascus and gives order to the other members of Islamic Jihad, wherever they are. But this man, Abul Atta, refused to get the orders from Ziyad Bahala in Damascus, and he started his own actions to take place in Gaza, doing whatever he feels like, not asking for the advice of Nahala or Hamas, not Israel, of course, no one. He just did what he felt like was the right thing to do. He had his own agenda. He wasn't taking orders necessarily from Iran. He did get money from Iran. But that's kind of um, an oppositionist that really was acting against everyone, and this is why I think that till that second that we speak, we do not see Hamas attacking Israel. For Hamas, it's really convenient that someone took took care of this troublemaker, Baha'u'llah. Hmm. Is it at all controversial in Israel for Israel to carry out a military operation like this when the politicians are still in the midst of forming a government? Well, there's a debate in Israel. So we cannot escape the feeling that maybe something was done here because of political consideration. Maybe something about the timing of this action wasn't right, considering that there's a coalition to form. But the bottom line was, uh, hey, this man was a threat, he's a threat. And, you know, the army and the Israeli intelligence are not that easily jumping into supporting Netanyahu's efforts to remain the prime minister. In this case, the army and the Israeli intelligence were the ones that were saying we have to deal with the threat that is called Baha'u'llah Atta and to take care of him as fast as possible before he's going to attack again Israeli citizens or Israeli talk. Mm-hmm. So there are really two routes that something like this can go, right? This flare-up of the Israel-Gaza conflict could escalate into a full-blown war. We could see Israeli infantry and tanks re-enter Gaza, as we saw in the summer of 2014, although um, 
one thing I hear from my Israeli friends is no one wants to fight a war in the winter, so that's not likely. And the other option is that this all peters out. What do you think is more likely, Avi? Are we going to see this escalate into a full-blown war or kind of fade away? My feeling is that it's more likely that it would fade away. For the fact is that both sides, the ones that are in control of the Gaza, which is Hamas, and the Israeli government, they do not have an interest in escalation or war. So, of course, there is an option that the smaller opposition group, Islamic Jihad, would drag everyone. But I think that if you look at the interests of both sides, they're aiming for some kind of a truce, ceasefire. And this is not a new thing. This is what's what going on in the underground between Israel and Hamas for the last few years. Netanyahu himself declared it more than once that he's not aiming to bring the fall of Hamas's government or Hamas's control over Gaza Strip. So I think that when we keep that in mind, that both sides are not interested in a war no matter what happens. And the problem is with an opposition group, I think that at the end we will be able to find a route to bring both sides into uh, truce again, into a ceasefire, and not to a lot of escalation. Thank you for that important perspective. In addition to your very serious journalism work, your work on the hit TV show Fauda has also made you a famous uh, showrunner. So just before we close, I heard that the show is going to be venturing into Gaza in season three. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's not only about Gaza, but yes, we are dealing with Gaza Street. We are dealing with the threat, uh, Hamas's threat that is coming through there. Avi, I so appreciate you coming on and sharing these insights, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on when Season 3 of Fauda comes out to talk a little bit about that. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. As with any military conflict, the situation between Israel and Gaza this week remains rapidly unfolding. After we spoke with Avi on Wednesday, we called up Judah Ari Gross, the military correspondent for the Times of Israel, on Thursday for an important update. Judah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Late last night, a ceasefire went into effect between Israel and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. In the past, this has been something that's brokered by a third party, often Egypt, and, you know, holds tenuously. But tell us about this ceasefire. How did it happen and when did it go into effect? So the ceasefire was announced first thing Thursday morning. Um, And this, like others, was brokered in part by Egypt as well as the United Nations. And it was within a few hours was broken with five rockets that were fired towards southern Israel. And then a couple hours later, it was broken again with another rocket that was intercepted by the Iron Dome, which is not unprecedented for these kinds of rounds of violence that shortly after a ceasefire takes effect, it's quickly broken so that one side can show that they're so tough. Um, But for now, it's sort of still in in effect. Israel hasn't responded to either of those uh, violations of the ceasefire with any airstrikes of its own. Um, And so now things are very tense. Uh, Schools are still going to be canceled in southern Israel tomorrow, not necessarily because the IDF is demanding it, but because the local government decided that it's sort of a safer option for them and for the children and for the teachers, which means that it's, I mean, nearly a full week of students being out of school in southern Israel, which obviously takes a pretty significant toll on people. But at the same time, things are sort of slowly getting back to what 
amounts to normal in that part of the country. What does the typical Israeli on the street think about what just happened this week? There was this whole round perhaps kicked off when Israel launched a targeted assassination against Palestinian Islamic Jihad arch-terrorist, although when we spoke with Avi Sakharov, he told us it actually should really be traced back to the attacks that Abu Alata was planning. Would the typical Israeli be glad that that terrorist is no longer plotting against Israel and so the rockets were a small price to pay, or are Israelis just kind of upset that this whole thing went down? Um, so I, I don't want to... Um... I mean, I, I appreciate the the man on the street sort of perspective of things, but it's obviously very important to recognize that, you know, Israelis are broad and diverse and have different opinions and you're not necessarily going to find consensus on anything like this. Um, but in terms of this case, I think generally speaking, no one is mourning the loss of Bahu Abu Alata because he was responsible for a number of you know, terror attacks that sent, you know, Israeli men, women and children running into bomb shelters that caused, you know, injuries that caused deaths. He, he was not a good guy. No one's no one's sad to see him go. Um, there's a question, is the benefit worth the cost? And I don't know that there's a 100 percent clear cut answer on that. In general, I think that Israelis are sad and tired of the situation in Gaza as it's been for the past at least two years. I mean, the years preceding that were much quieter. Um, there were, of course, some attacks during those years, but the three years or so after the 2014 war were some of the quietest sort of on the Gaza front. The past two years have been not as quiet um, as an understatement. Um, and people, no one sees a clear solution to this, but everybody hates the problem. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of reporting about how Hamas chose to stay on the sidelines during this latest round. Uh, I assume Hamas hasn't suddenly become pacifist. So in the absence of that kind of, you know, utter renunciation of violence, which we know Hamas is not about, why was it significant that they didn't get involved in this back and forth? So in terms of military strength, Hamas and um, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad are similar. They're sort of peers, you know, by some accounts, you know, they're, they're generally seen as being sort of relatively equal in terms of the arsenals, in terms of their capabilities. But the real fundamental difference between the two is that Hamas is at least is the de facto rulers. They're the de facto rulers of the Gaza Strip. Um, and with that comes responsibilities to the people who live there. Now, I don't think I'll say I don't believe that they are particularly good rulers in that regard. I don't think that they often have the people of Gaza's best interests at heart, but they do have a certain degree of responsibility towards those people. And so to that end, they've been negotiating through third parties with Israel for ceasefires, for, you know, getting reconstruction funds and so on. And while that's been going on, this guy, uh, Baha Abu Atta, has been messing that up for them um, by carrying out attacks against Israel, forcing you know new rounds of violence, throwing these ceasefire agreements into turmoil, stopping funds, sowing discord, etc. Um, so they also, as I'm sure Avi pointed out, Hamas was not sad to see him go either, and 
I think you can sort of see it as, well, yes, there's always the rhetoric, which even was coming out during the fighting of, you know, Hamas and Islamic Jihad are brothers, they're together, they're fighting, you know, side by side, you can't differentiate. But at the same time, there's a very, you know, realpolitik understanding that one is not the other and sort of this isn't our fight in terms of uh, Hamas's viewpoint. So they said things, but did very little to nothing during that time. And in exchange, Israel did not do anything to them either. And it was for the first time in these two years of extensive fighting, and even before then, there have been times where Islamic Jihad have carried out attacks, and Israel still generally directs them against Hamas. And in this case, there was a very clear differentiation, both by Israel targeting only Islamic Jihad and not Hamas, and Hamas saying, hey, we're not being attacked here, so why are we going to lose our fighters and our facilities and our infrastructure when we're not being bombed? Which is a pretty interesting development in all of this, and it sort of raises questions going forward. Will Israel continue to see the difference if, you know, in a few weeks or a few months, someone from the Islamic Jihad fires, a, you know, a sniper shoots at a, a soldier on the border, you know, heaven forbid, is the IDF going to retaliate by striking Hamas? Or are they going to say, no, that was Islamic Jihad and start differentiating and say, no, that was Fatah? No, that was, you know, this Salafist group? Is this going to, you know, extend to other places? Or is this sort of a one-time only situation where the IDF was differentiating between the terror groups and the Gaza Strip? So, I mean, that's something that I'll be watching sort of going forward. Very tangled web there and we will be watching right along with you thank you judah so much for sharing your insights with us today sure thank you for the past year a yiddish language production of fiddler on the roof has been running off broadway to nearly sold out crowds of course fiddler which debuted on stage in 1964 has a reputation for being a hit Set in early 20th century Tsarist Russia, the story about Tevya the dairyman and his quest to find a good Jewish husband for his three oldest daughters who want to marry for love held the record as the longest-running Broadway musical for almost a decade. It won nine Tony Awards, it's had at least five Broadway revivals, and it was adapted for film. It's also a staple of high school drama clubs. In fact, my former high school in Waco, Texas, is staging Fiddler later this month. So it may come as somewhat of a shock, if not a shanda, that the first time I saw Fiddler was this current off-Broadway production in Yiddish, which I have to say made it all the more powerful. Joining us today is Stephen Skybell, who plays the musical's protagonist, Tevia the Dairyman, and Zalman Mlatek, the artistic director of National Yiddish Theater Folksbina and the musical director for the show. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Zalman, let's start with the Yiddish. Can you give us a primer on Yiddish, its history, its evolution? Why was it the language you chose for this show? Well, Yiddish was the lingua franca of Eastern European Jewry. And Shalom Aleichem, uh, the writer of Tevye, the stories of Tevye, wrote, of course, in Yiddish. Mm -hmm. So when the creators of Fiddler, Sheldon Harnig, Jerry Bach, Joe Stein, with Jerome Robbins, you know, discovered the works of Shalom Aleichem, they read them, of course, in English and chose to base their musical, Fiddler, based on the Yiddish. 
Fiddler had such a success that it became almost instantly translated into other languages, Fiddler itself, the musical. Mm-hmm. And it was performed in Japan and uh, Germany and France and South America, all over. And of course, Israel did a version in Hebrew, and then they did a version in Yiddish. And they recorded the excerpts of the Yiddish Fiddler that they recorded, I think, in 65. And growing up, I heard that album. And the sound of that album, the sound of Fiddler, the score, of course, we all grew up on the Zero Mostel recording, but hearing it in Yiddish kind of planted itself, planted an idea in my my soul, my consciousness, whatever, that at some point I would love to present the Yiddish version of So, you know, with time, the National Yiddish Theater was able to find the resources to look. Now, Stephen, let's hear a clip of you revealing why the show is called what it is. And for people who don't know Yiddish, the words you're about to hear are, without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as, well, a fiddler on the roof. Traditia. Traditia. When it under traditions, what no under the show, the show in Polanka, zappled be, be, be a fiddler off and Now, Stephen... Did you speak Yiddish before this production? I did not speak Yiddish. Okay. <laughs> um, I had in my adulthood with my brother, initially, we tried to learn Yiddish together, primarily as a way to hold on to my knowledge of my Hebrew letters, which, of course, I knew Hebrew. I was bar mitzvahed, and I grew up in Lubbock, Texas. I was bar mitzvahed there, and I, I was just always concerned for myself alone not to lose my Hebrew letters. Uh-huh. So my brother and I thought maybe learning Yiddish would be a way to hold on to those letters huh. and because Yiddish is, even though it has a can have a very Germanic sound, the alphabet is the Hebrew alphabet. So, right. And then that was only quasi-successful. But then <laughs> one summer, 2006, I happened to be in Chicago doing Wicked in Chicago, and I contacted Northwestern and the lady who ran the Yiddish class said I could audit her Yiddish class. And then she said that the class didn't have a large enough enrollment, so if I would wanted to come to her house, she would teach me Yiddish privately at her home. And I did that. And when I met with the folks, Zalman and the others at the Folkspina, even though I didn't speak Yiddish, I told them this Yiddish journey for me. And they asked me, why are you in Yiddish? What was it that you kept wanting to learn Yiddish? And really the truth of it was that I knew one day, I hoped one day I might have something to do on the stage in Yiddish, just because I knew that there was a wealth of Yiddish theatrical material, plays and music. And so I just thought maybe that would be a niche for me, never thinking that, of course, this would be what has happened. Wow. Now, you had also played Tevya in previous productions of Fiddler on the Roof. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, you're saying that they're doing it in Waco at the high school you went to. Well, my first experience of Fiddler on the Roof was at the Lubbock Theater Center when I was 10 years old. They decided to do Fiddler on the Roof in Lubbock, Texas. Oh, wow. That's almost as amazing as Waco. (laughs) Right. And I played one of the Chuppah boys. And true to the Jerome Robbins tradition, we all chose names. So I was Pavel the peasant boy. I remember that. (laughs) <laughs> but then in summer camp, I went to Interlochen National Music Camp. And at 17, I played Tevya in a production there. 
And then at 21, we did Fiddler on the Roof at Yale undergrad, where I went to college. And those were two Tevyas that I played. And then I was always thinking, well, when I get older, I'll play Tevya again. And time went and time went and time went. And then I, um, two years ago, played Laser Wolf in the most recent Broadway revival okay. of Fiddler. But I never found Tevya. And then finally, the folks being a Tevya came my way. And I, I like to jokingly tell that I rolled my eyes when I was cast saying, just my luck. I'm finally playing Tevya, but it's in Yiddish. And, you know, never again realizing, thinking that it would tap such a deep chord with Jewish and non-Jewish audiences that here we are a year and a half later and we're still running. It's been an unexpected dream come true to play Tevya in Yiddish. Yeah. So now I have to ask, did the cast, other members of the cast, had to learn Yiddish from scratch, Right. Correct. Or, or did everybody did, have a little I, I want, bit? Yeah, I wanted to. I just wanted to put the casting actually in context a little bit for you. When we announced that we were doing Fiddler in Yiddish with Joel Gray in the Times, uh, we received over twenty five hundred inquiries from actors all over the country mm-hmm. and world of interest to audition for us. We chose to see seven hundred people. Wow! And of the seven hundred, we picked the 26, who not only could sing, dance, act, and be a presence on stage, but also we felt after hearing them had the capacity to learn the Yiddish and to be able to integrate it in an emotional way so that we believed them totally that they were doing it. Mm -hmm. I want to say, you know, when Stephen walked into the room after he left, all of us looked at each other kind of speechless. We didn't say a word to each other, but all of us knew immediately that we had found, you know, our dream Tevya, actually. Somebody who came in knowing the Yiddish to the extent that he did, but more than that, conveyed the text in such a, a deep way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have to say, to his credit, he has kept the production, because of his commitment, because of his understanding of the role, he has kept the production. The whole cast has stayed at a, at a level after how many performances over a year where each performance is as fresh and as vibrant as our earlier performances. And I give credit to him and, of course, to our director, to Joel. And Stephen can tell you more about Joel if you're, yeah. that process was quite interesting. I, I want to, before we get too far away from what you said, Stephen, about it hitting a deep chord, yeah. tell me what you mean by that and why you think that has happened. And Zalman, I'll, I'll want you to address this as well, please. Well, I'll just say, I mean, from a Jewish point of view, my grandfather, who grew up in Poland, lived with us in Lubbock, Texas. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents spoke Yiddish to each other to obscure what they were saying to us. So although (laughs) I didn't know Yiddish, I had heard Yiddish Mm -hmm. growing up, just ambient, in the ambience of life. And so when I first read the script in Yiddish, the first line, I burst into tears. And I can't even tell you why. The Yiddish just touches a chord. There's a Yiddish expression, the pintaliyit, the little point of the Jew that is in every Jewish person. And it just spoke to that very deeply. So I know that a lot of Jewish people who come to our show have that overwhelming experience just by being 
bathed in the sounds of Yiddish, but it's not as easily definable for non-Jewish people, and yet non-Jewish people equally have had that experience. And I think for some people who desire authenticity, there is something undeniable that it would be similar to seeing a Chekhov play in Russian, that to see these characters that came out of the imagination of a Yiddish writer, Sholem Aleichem, speaking the language that he created them in, whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish, it really speaks to a desire to see bona fide authenticity and to really see a lens into a, a life. And so I do think that also appeals to people who may not have a Yiddish relationship in their personal history. And then the last thing is that even though the story is being told in Yiddish, and it is a Jewish story, it is about family, and then ultimately it's about a global situation, which is what happens when you're forced out of your home. And sadly, in 2019, the themes that go beyond the household into the world at large are still frighteningly relevant. And I do think Jews and non-Jews alike are responding viscerally to that in our production, mm. because it's still alive uh, hatred and ignorance and anti-Semitism specifically, but any kind of hatred of the other is still alive. And the final movement of the musical addresses that head on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. I, I was sitting in the audience and I, I was. I was thinking about Jews around the world, British Jews, French Jews, German Jews, some American Jews, a, a large number of whom are saying they don't feel safe. They would consider leaving right. their homes, much like Tevye and his neighbors. I mean, Zalman, right. was that on purpose? I mean, were you thinking about the times we are in when you were conceiving this show? Was that one of your goals? Well, you know, first of all, I have to say, you know, I didn't conceive the show. The show was conceived by first, I mean, the theme was conceived by Shalom Aleichem. Then the, you know, the, the Broadway team, Bach, Harnick, Stein and Robbins conceived the show. Of but course. when I decided to do it in Yiddish, I knew living in the present, one can't help but be moved and by affected by what's going on in the world. And I believe that hearing it in the Yiddish, in the authentic language, would touch a nerve. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Stephen has put it so articulately that this is something that transcends a Jewish story. This is sadly a story of peoples all over the world. So the Yiddish definitely does you know, resonate. Mm -hmm. You know, Stephen, earlier on, you spoke about authenticity. Can you speak more to that and what you meant by that? Well, um, when Joel started rehearsing with us, it was clear that he wanted this to be as true and as real, as lived and authentic as any stage play that has ever been done, and regardless, musical or non-musical, and stripping of anything that was inessential to try and really reveal these characters. And so in that respect, it's been a delight to play this play. I, I really do call it a play when I talk about it to people rather mm -hmm. than a musical. And the truth is, a modern musical would not have book scenes that Fiddler on the Roof has, which go on and on in a way that 
I think modern conception of what a musical is doesn't let development of characters or plot happen the way Fiddler on the Roof does. Mm -hmm. And it's just been a delight to be an actor performing it. And I know from people who have seen the show, theater folks, friends of mine have commented, and this I do lay absolutely at the feet of Joel Gray, that in an age where the theatrical experience of going to the theater can be a little glitzy and a little surface and a little showy, (laughs) that the experience of seeing real people on stage going through something deeply real, audiences are grabbing onto that as well. It's a play, but people respond to it. And I hear the silence every night throughout our production that they are grabbed by the truth of what we're trying to present. And that to me speaks to a certain theatrical authenticity that we're not sort of showing it. We're living it. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add just one thing about the authenticity. In looking at the score, I also chose to accentuate a lot of the musical moments that Jerry Bach created that were based on uh, folk tunes and Russian folk tunes. And I made sure to hire the right instrumentalists who were versed in klezmer music and playing Eastern European music so that they could add that special flavor Mm -hmm. to the music. And I think that that does add somewhat to the It's incredible. I have to just say from like being on the stage at the wedding or in L'Chaim and when you hear this orchestra go into their klezmer mode in hyperdrive, it is just the most delicious thing ever. (laughs) That's a great word to use to describe it. In fact, let's listen now. You know, yeah. I want to talk about that wedding scene that you just referenced. Um, mm. you know, Act one ends with that wedding scene. It ends with celebration and destruction. And you know, the marriage That's... of Tevia's oldest daughter and then the drama that interrupts mm. that. And you know, the woman beside me in the audience said, oh, that's so Jewish. It's a celebration and destruction, joy and sorrow. Yeah. And I am curious yeah. if that is a common Jewish motif and if that was the intention of that scene. Well, I mean, again, that's really a question for the creators of Fiddle on the Roof. Well, of course. But, but that, <laughs> that, you know, um, I'll mention as a sidebar, there is a recent documentary that's out that I actually was interviewed for. It's called Miracle of Miracles, where they talk about the iconic status of Fiddler on the Roof. And in that documentary, Joe Stein is interviewed and he says, when they first came up with the idea for this musical, people were like, are you crazy? You're going to end act one with a pogrom at a wedding? (laughs) That feels polar opposite to musical theater. And yet that is what happens. And the play takes a very terrible turn at that moment. But it's been set up from the very beginning that it's not out of the blue that this pogrom happens. It has been set up so that it's not unexpected. Even the song Sunrise Sunset speaks to what you're saying. Life is tears of joy and tears of sorrow 
intermingled. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's necessarily a Jewish notion or just a human notion, but I will also address, because we did just pass two days ago, the anniversary of Kristallnacht. And last year on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, we had a sort of commemoration at the Museum of Jewish Heritage where we first performed the musical. And Zalman mentioned there's the moment in the wedding where the master of ceremonies of the wedding proceedings says, and now it's time to remember our dearly departed. Mm -hmm. And it can be seen as a comic moment. And certainly it gets a little bit of a laugh that everybody goes into a mode where they're praying for and crying for their dearly departed loved ones. And then he says, okay, enough crying. Let's get back to the joy. Um, right. But to me, it really is a deep moment. And Zalman a year ago brought that into high relief when he said it's the anniversary of Kristallnacht. So people lost their lives that day. Mm-hmm. And here we are doing this musical. So why not open that moment up to remember them mm-hmm. just for a split second? And so although it can be seen as funny, I do think, yes, the wedding has it, but the whole play of Fiddler, and I think it's a human characteristic that we laugh and we cry, and I hope if we're lucky enough, it's a mixture of both. Yes, yes. You know, it was Shalom Aleichem who coined the expression, laughing is healthy, lachen is gesund, laughing is healthy, doctorium hasten lach, doctors prescribe it. And the whole concept of laughter through tears is, I think, something that is very much a part of Shalom and Yiddish culture, and certainly we hear it and we yeah. feel it in this. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. This show closes in January. Is it January 5th? Is that correct? January 5th is when we stop performing in New York. And then just as a little teaser, I will tell you there are plans for the show now to travel the globe. So, Oh, fantastic. uh, Wherever you may be listening to this, we may be coming to a theater near you. Oh, wonderful news. Thank you so much. That's such a gift for our listeners. Well, Zalman Malatek and Stephen Skybell, thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Manya, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Well, Sefi, you work with college students on a pretty regular basis, right? Yep. And do they ever make mistakes or just plain bad decisions? That doesn't ring any bells to me. Okay, yeah, maybe a few. Yeah, just a few. (laughs) Well, I've been thinking a lot about my college days and all the many, many mistakes I made and learned from. And I'll tell you why. I used to teach journalism classes at Northwestern University, and there has been a huge uproar there about the way the Campus Daily has apologized for its coverage of a political protest there when former Attorney General Jeff Sessions came to speak. They apologized for posting photographs of the protesters and contacting them ahead of time to arrange interviews, you know, the kind of conventional shoe-leather reporting that keeps our democracy safe. The journalism school dean, Charles Whitaker, has come out with a very eloquent and forceful statement about the campus newspaper's decision. And I encourage listeners, if you haven't followed this discussion, seek it out. It really gives us an interesting perspective on the pressures facing journalists, especially college journalists, on campuses where tensions really have never been higher and free speech is so under threat, which we know a lot about here at AJC. 
you know, I've been joking with colleagues about what percentage of my college journalism output I wish I could take back. And I think the newspaper staff's apology may fall into that category one of these days. It's really a true teachable moment for young journalists. But why do I bring it up here? Well, my mind also goes to something else I learned in college. And I went to Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And before I got there, I had never heard the term Jew down. You see, anti-Semitism, it wasn't a thing for me growing up. Was it a thing for you, Sefi? I mean, were you familiar with some of the terms? In my Jewish day school, there wasn't too much anti-Semitism when I was growing up. Right. We were, we were, <laughs> I think we were isolated for very different reasons. Um, but <laughs> um, but I, I just I didn't know Jews were branded as greedy, as controlling. I didn't know we had signature noses. All of this was part of my college education. Um, But I have continued since then to build a glossary of anti-Semitic terms, and coming to AJC has has really only broadened that glossary. You know, when we were renaming this podcast, uh, someone made the snarky suggestion that we call it The Globalist, and I said, sure, why not? That's a great idea, and quickly learned, no, that's another anti-Semitic term. (laughs) Uh, So I want to encourage listeners to look up the actual glossary that AJC published this week under the title translate hate. It is two dozen terms, explanations for why they're anti-Semitic when used in a certain context. I have already learned quite a bit, and I think it will make for a great spicy conversation at my Shabbat dinner table. Indeed. I've, I've also been following this stuff out of Northwestern, and thank you for putting such a, a fascinating gloss on all of it. Also joining us at our Shabbat table this weekend is Miriam Hirschlag, the opinion and blogs editor at The Times of Israel. Miriam, what are you going to be serving up this week? Hey, Sefi and Manya, it's great to be with you. So we're having friends over for dinner whose son serves in military intelligence in the Kiryah, the IDF headquarters in Tel Aviv. If the army lets him out for Shabbat dinner, and that's a big if, I think we'll try to prize some classified info out of him. We'll probably say, you know, if you want your polenta and mushrooms, you're going to have to tell us whether there's any more targeted killings planned for the next few days. Is Israel planning to off another high-ranking Islamic jihad official? You can tell us. We can keep a secret. We just want to be able to plan our week. Will Tel Aviv be shut down again? Should we already reschedule appointments? Can your mother go to work in Modi'in? And I imagine that he, sweet boy that he is, will stare quietly at his soup and say, I really like polenta and mushrooms, and we'll relent and move on to other topics. I think we'll also give a thought to the 23-year-old daughter of dear friends in America who is freshly arrived to Israel and is based in Cholon near Tel Aviv. Now, I'm living here in Jerusalem, which is usually, not always, but usually off limits for rockets from Gaza. And when I woke up on Tuesday to the news that 70% of Israelis were confined to safe rooms and bomb shelters, our friend's daughter was the first person I thought of. I worried a lot more for her state of mind than for her physical safety. And in fact, when we spoke, she was shaken after hearing two huge booms outside her window. I asked if she wanted to come to Jerusalem, but by then she had arrived at the home of relatives in the Tel Aviv area. And it was good to know that she was with longtime Israelis, the kind who know the drill, who know the danger, but also the numbers. I mean, how to keep things in perspective, to keep that balance of being careful while living to the fullest and to always keep the Israeli sense of humor Because, of course, in emergency situations, the tragedy in Israel and Gaza, death and destruction, fear, tension, anger, uncertainty, in the midst of all that, there's always, always that dark Israeli humor. The best line I saw was one that said, 
As long as there is no school and work today, and it's Tuesday, we should hold elections. And if you're not sure why that's funny, you'll just have to trust me. It's funny. That's my Shabbat Dable talk. Thank you so much for that perspective on the ground, Miriam. That was that was scary. Thank you, Miriam. And I should just note that while we were recording this segment, I got about another dozen alerts on my phone signifying sirens going off in the south of Israel as more rockets are launched from Gaza. So we'll be thinking about that and praying and, and hoping for quiet over this weekend in Israel and around the world. At my Shabbat table, I'll be talking about the most remarkable story that I heard this week from a friend. She was at a bachelorette party for an Israeli friend of hers here in New York City. The women were all at a drag bar, and one of the performers called the bride-to-be up on stage. When they asked her where she was from, she said Israel, and boos sprang up around the room. Can you imagine that? Booing a bride just based on her nationality? They knew nothing about her politics. They knew she was Israeli, and that was enough. And I can't think of a single other country that would have elicited that response. Iran? China? North Korea? Russia, I think all of those women get cheered in that drag bar while this poor Israeli woman gets booed. There's no heartwarming moral here, unfortunately, but Israel's place in the world is a tricky, thorny issue. It's one we talk about a lot here at AJC, and it's one I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table this week. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom and stay safe, Miriam. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 